Too smart for your trading app? Tired of brokers made for beginners? Then it's time you get serious. It's time you join Tasty Trade. The tools and tech you need for a tough market, plus low and capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more, all in one place. If you trade anywhere else, you're missing out. Join the club, genius. Visit TastyTrade.com. Tasty Trade Inc. is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA, NFA, and SIPC. Good Friday morning and welcome to Money Movers. I'm Sarah Eisen with Mike Santoli, live from Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic just moments away, live here with us on set, making the case for why the Fed should be holding off now on rate cuts. Plus, DraftKings CEO Jason Robbins on earnings, the Super Bowl gambling numbers, and the company's acquisition of Jackpocket. A lot of questions there around that one. First up, though, on stocks. Mike, you know, we were joking that that this market, it's been glass half full, and it really seems to talk itself into Goldilocks, no matter what data point gets thrown at it. Today was PPI, a little bit hotter than expected wholesale inflation read. The market started off lower. Uh, And now we're flirting with unchanged levels for the week and down only two-tenths of a percent. Putting on a brave face, I mean, I do think you've had months of accumulated evidence that there was a basis for the the Goldilocks-ish soft landing economic resilience call. Obviously, uh, bonds are responding. You know, yields are a bit higher. Uh, We also have an interesting dynamic again today where a lot of the familiar leaders are not really helping out the index. So you had the Magnificent Seven yesterday. Five of them were down, even as the market was up, the S&P was up, and did make a new high. And today, the biggest drags on the S&P are Meta, Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, Microsoft. So in other words, we're still trying to rotate into other areas. We'll see if that plays through. I saw that. I thought, oh, good for the market, making a new high. Exactly. This is what we've been waiting for. And um, look, we'll see if it uh, it can. All right. Let's talk more about the data and what it's telling us. Joining us here on set is Rafael Bostic, the president of the Atlanta Fed. He is a voter on the Fed this year. It's good to have you here. Oh, good morning. It's Lo- good to see you. Good morning, especially at Post 9. So PPI comes in a little bit hotter on top of CPI a little bit hotter. How, how surprised were you about these numbers? Well, I was a little surprised, but not in a big way. Look, I think we've seen a lot of progress in terms of inflation. I am expecting that through the course of 2024, it'll be a little bumpy. I think the trend will continue, but the path all the way to 2%, I don't think we're going to get to that number immediately. So these sorts of numbers, they're kind of okay, and I can live with it. And to me, it just says, we just have to be patient and let's not get too far ahead in assuming that the job is done because there's still work to do. I guess the, the fear would be that there's some, there are some signals around the economy overheating. Again, acceleration toward the end of last year and into this year. Higher inflation numbers, higher inflation expectations in today's University of Michigan sentiment report. How do we, how do we determine that that's not happening? Well, we have to talk to people and we just have to see where things go. You know, one of the things that we do in Atlanta is we try to get out and get a sense of things in real time. Talk to business leaders, talk to CFOs, talk to families to get a sense of how they're feeling about the economy. What we're hearing right now is that people are feeling all right, that we've gotten through a lot of the hard stuff. The pandemic seems to be receding from people's minds. Uh, And so that means that we're going to just take time to get back to normal. This is really just let time play out, let people get a new equilibrium. And I think when when that happens, uh, we'll be fine. So you're pretty confident that the disinflationary trend to 2% is intact? Today, that's what I think. But, you know, I, I was saying to people yesterday in some remarks, I'm grateful that we, how far we've come, but we have to stay vigilant. 
because there is a lot of risk and uncertainty that's still in the economy. And we just have to monitor those things and make sure we understand how that plays out. So how will you know when to start cutting? Well, there'll, there'll be art to this, okay. but I do think that um, we will get to a place where the full range of information around inflation will tell us that normalization is closer. Like, so right now, if you look at uh, the dispersion of prices, almost a third of the PCE basket uh, has price increases over 5%. That's 50% higher than what you'd see ordinarily. So when you have lots of price, uh, products that are showing lots of high price changes, it's hard to imagine that you're there yet. Uh, similarly, some of the trimmed mean measures, like taking out the extreme measures, those are also kind of plateauing. I, I like to look at the Dallas Fed's trimmed mean measure. That one's been at about 2.6 for about mm. six months now. And so these are the sorts of things, if, if we start to see progress in those sorts of measures, that'll give me more confidence. You mentioned that um, obviously you can't assume uh, an immediate trip to 2% toward the Fed's uh, inflation target. But if you kind of stack up the things we know and that you folks have said at the Fed, which is we're not really anticipating 2% by the end of this year collectively, uh, you have to start cutting or expect to be cutting before you get to the target. And there is this widespread, even between current inflation levels and where the Fed funds rate is, you don't want to get too restrictive. All of those things still seem to feed in the direction of you start normalization before terribly long. Well, my outlook is to start the normalization, start returning our, our product policy stance to a more neutral stance in the summertime. Right? And I'll have to say, a, a year ago, six months ago, I was in the fourth quarter. So we've seen tremendous progress, and I'm hopeful that that continues. If that continues, I'll be willing to pull it forward even further, but I want to see it continue before making that judgment. You still think three rate cuts this year? Well, that, that's what was in the dot plot. I was one of the two rate cut increases. Okay. Uh, so I'm still at two, uh, but if I pull it forward, if the, if the data comes in more positively, I could move to three for sure. What about the economy? Right now, because we're also getting mixed signals. We had a worse than expected report on retail sales. What's your sense of what's happening with growth and the consumer? Well, the consumer, as you know, for two years now has been incredibly resilient. Uh, we'd, I'd expect that to slow down somewhat. And I think over the next six months, it would not surprise me if that's what happened. Uh, but there's still tremendous momentum in the economy. GDP has, has surprised to the upside pretty tremendously. Job creation has, has really been quite remarkable. And there's evidence to suggest that productivity of the American worker has improved as well and been up. Those things all augur good signs and tell me that, uh, that we can afford to be patient in terms of our policy. We don't have to make judgments so immediately. Let's make sure that we know what we know and then make judgments based on that. And all those things that you just detailed there in terms of how resilient the economy has been it also led to the conclusion that this economy is not as sensitive, perhaps, to interest rates as we might have thought it was a couple of years ago. What are the implications of that for now? Does that give you a luxury to say, look, the, the economy is not on pins and needles needing a 25 basis point cut right now? And, and what does it mean about the, the neutral rate? Well, look, through the pandemic, we know that there was a lot of fiscal support, a lot of families couldn't spend the way they, they would ordinarily, but we're making income, right? So they're not going to be as sensitive more generally. And also, I should say, a lot of folks refinance to lock in that 3% rate. So, so all of those things would say our policy rates are going to take longer to have their full impact, and we just need to be patient to let that play through. And I think that's what's, what's, play, what's playing out right now. When I talk to bankers, 
I always ask them, compared to where they were pre-pandemic, what are your customers' balances are today? During the pandemic, it was like 100%, everyone's higher, higher, higher. Now it's about 50% higher, higher. So we're getting to that normalization, we're getting back to that pace, but again, this is not something that happens overnight, and so we, we will just have to be patient. But to Mike's point, it does make you wonder how restrictive policy rates are right now. Oh, I'll tell you, we're having that argument in my building, right? And, and I think the main and most important part is that they are restrictive. Now, uh, is it as, as, as restrictive as it might be historically? Probably not because some of the things we've just talked about. But on some level, we just needed to be in the restrictive space. And as long as the economy is performing well, then I'm okay with this taking longer. Like, like, like having a return to 2% and having people get more jobs and get paid at higher, that's a, that's a good news story. And it's one that I would not be eager to try to, to undermine. You say as long as the economy is doing well, you can help settle as friendly uh, disagreements Sarah and I have about financial conditions <laughs> and whether that's something that needs to be targeted right here. Because clearly rates where they are is not really restraining, you know, financial risk taking at the moment, at least in terms of asset prices. No, they're celebrating the like cut, that. the coming and credit cuts. Spreads, well, yeah, there's been. Here's what I would say on this. There are segments of the economy that have been very strongly affected. By our, by our policy. You look at mortgage markets, first-time home buyers, there are lots of folks out there who are definitely affected by this. But at the same time, there is a lot of positive news in the economy. When I talk to business leaders now, they tell me, look, we feel like in some regards, we've gotten through the worst of the storm, and we're still standing, we're in a good place, our customers still are showing significant demand, and that's a good thing. Uh, and so we're just, again, gonna just have to play this out be patient. Uh, I'm going to remain vigilant to make sure that the economy doesn't turn in a negative way. Uh, and if we can do that, then I think uh, there's not the urgency that, that some might have suggested on us moving to cut rates. What are you thinking about in terms of when to start tapering the balance sheet reduction? Because now that's a conversation, right, at the Fed. It's definitely a conversation. And, and you know, I, I don't want to get too technical, but there, like there's, there are some measures like, like in our overnight reverse repo markets uh, that we're trading, that, that we're getting 2 trillion, 2.2 trillion nightly. Now it's about 500 million or 500, yes. And yeah. so, so those are the sorts of things that tell me that um, there's still a lot of liquidity in the marketplace, not as much as before. And so we can continue. But as, we get, as that gets further and further down, you're going to have to ask a more sophisticated set of questions to really understand how much liquidity there is in the marketplace. Because ultimately, all of this was done to make sure that markets could function. Markets are still functioning, both in terms of the money market side and in, in, in mortgages. That's a good thing. Uh, we just want to make sure that our actions don't trigger dysfunction. So is that a summertime story, too? Uh, it could be. So I'll tell you, as the overnight repo markets have moved, um, I have increasingly talked to my folks in the building and say, we need answers for this. We need to start to have an idea about what kind of uh, playbook we would have in thinking about what's happening and what our policy change should be. That is in process now. Uh, I'm hopeful we'll get answers and we'll have a view on this in the next month or so. Can, can those answers come from simply going out and talking to people in the market at banks? Or do you have to see the market itself kind of say, we've reached the limit, you know, and we're starting to see some stress? Well, I'd rather not see stress if we <laughs> yeah. can avoid it. I guess so, how close do you want to get to that point is the question. So yeah. I, I, I don't like to go right to the line. Yeah. Right? Also, it'd be much better and a much smoother experience if 
we could stop before we, we get to the edge on that. We talked to lots of folks, uh, and we just really want to make sure that we're on top of it. With, when it comes to the balance sheet, reduction specifically? Yes. What about the jobs market? We talked about the strength. I mean, you have to have been surprised, as most economists were, to see the January payrolls report, the revisions to the December payrolls report, and the higher wages, which is good that Americans are getting paid and that there's still demand for labor. But it does, again, raise this question about the services sector of the economy just running too hot. Well, there are two things on this. So one, those numbers were super surprising. And I, I have to say- In a good way. Yes, you know, in a very, very good way. I got yeah. more jobs from more Americans is a, is a good thing. Um, the thing I was really looking at was the wage numbers. Uh, and I wanted to, because one of the things I've heard from my contacts is that um, wages are still going to be higher and wage growth is going to be higher than historically, but it's starting to normalize. And what we've seen and now, wage growth has been uh, positive, is real wage growth higher than inflation. It is continuing that, that, that downward trend back to normal, and, it, and that is continuing. And as long as that's continuing, I'm pretty comfortable with labor markets. We have to remember, right before the pandemic, labor markets were incredibly tight. The number one challenge that almost all businesses have, and you know this, is finding workers to fill slots. That's basically where we are today. Labor force participation has increased. Immigration has happened. There have been lots of things that have happened that are allowing uh, firms to hire, and they're doing it. And so this is all sort of the regular function of the marketplace. And whether it's too hot, 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 mildly hot, like I don't, no. I don't want to get into that. But it's, it's sort of the full dynamic that's really important. It's interesting also that it's happening at a time where we are seeing increasing number of layoffs from companies. Today we reported on Nike. I mean, every day there's a company that is talking about trimming a certain percentage of its workforce because top line is down and everybody wants to have efficiency. Well, you know, I think that's actually almost a return to what it used to be. Like in regular times, Firms are always, there are always a share a number of firms that are reducing their workforce, readjusting, rebalancing as market conditions change. I think we're starting to see that dynamic happen just in a more regular, orderly way after two and a half or three years of, on some level, chaos, like through, through a pandemic. We've come in the habit of talking about whatever nature of a landing the economy is going to have. I mean, can you simply settle into a place where there's just this kind of steadiness to growth and the, the job market can kind of hang in there, um, you know, absent a shock? Would you even uh, kind of venture that you would predict something like that? Because that seems to be the best case scenario is to normalization without necessarily having to have a big payback in the economy. Totally agree with that. And, you know, I, I would say the goal for me is to have our policy rate go to neutral and let the economy just run on its own. Right. We've, we've been through so, a, a series of tremendous shocks that have like, lurched the economy back and forth, had the potential to create a lot of distress. And to, to this day, we have avoided that. I'm very grateful for that. And I just want to make sure that as we do our policy, uh, we get to that place as easily and as quickly as possible uh, so that we can all just run. And you guys can do reporting and, uh, and have lots of <laughs> we'll folks. we have to find have, something uh, else to... Well, one potential risk that I just want to ask you about is in commercial real estate and exposure, particularly in some regional banks. How concerned are you about that? Well, you know, it's something that I always have to look at. You know, we are a bank examiner, and I tell people all the time, our job is to make sure every bank that's alive today is alive tomorrow. 
And so we're looking through this thing. What I would say to you is that the banks in our district, uh, we are not seeing excessive stress in that regard. I think part of it is because in the great financial crisis, so many banks in the Southeast collapsed because of real estate exposures. So there's a heightened sensitivity to that as a general matter. Uh, but we are also talking very closely with them uh, about what we need and what we're looking for and what they need to be worrying about. So what is your, the biggest risk to your, for, to your outlook right now? I think the biggest risk to my outlook is uh, geopolitics. You know, I think we, what we've seen over the last several years is things happening beyond our shores that have had major impacts on our economy. I think about the war in uh, Ukraine and the disruption to, to energy markets as well as to food prices. And even the, the stuff that's happened in the Middle East, uh, the shipping container prices have gone up considerably. That hasn't flown, uh, uh, flowed through into the economy as deeply, uh, but there's always a risk of that. All right, Raphael Bostic, great to, great to have you here and get to thoroughly go through your outlook. It's Thank great you. to see you in person. Thank you. You too. Raphael Bostic, Atlanta Fed president. All right. Well, DraftKings CEO Jason Robbins is next on the Super Bowl and fourth quarter results. Still reporting a wider than expected loss. That was despite a 44% jump in revenue. Plus, watching the chips today, it's Applied Materials, which is up big, boosted by a beat and raise on the back of strong China demand, share gains, and a positive view on the industry's recovery. The entire sector is getting a lift again. The Dow's down 49 points, continuing to trim its losses. We'll be right back. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back. DraftKings posting a bottom line miss in Q4. Revenue did jump 44 percent from last year, though, with the company raising its guidance for fiscal 24 and announcing plans to acquire lottery app Jackpocket. Let's bring in DraftKings CEO Jason Robbins. We have so much to talk about, Jason. Welcome. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) So first on the quarter and just the business, it, it seems like the business is healthy. The misses were largely about, you know, customer winnings. Take us through what happened here. Oh, I mean, we had the the worst two-week run of uh, NFL outcomes that we've had since we've been a public company. So, you know, that happens sometimes in the short term. The nature of the business when you're taking risk on sport outcomes is you're going to have customer-friendly outcomes. And uh, it always kind of swings back over time. And so, um, you know, that was really at the underlying fundamentals of the business. All the core value drivers were super healthy. We had incredible customer engagement, acquisition, customer acquisition strongly outperformed expectations. Um, so really everything was clicking on all cylinders. We just had a few bad sport outcomes, but that'll happen. And, uh, you know, that was really what gave us the confidence to make a 15% increase in our bottom line guide for this year. How about the competition? How's that been affecting you? I mean, the stock has done well. You said the business is in good shape, but just more and more entrants and some of the big players like MGM and Caesars. And it's not just, 
you and FanDuel anymore, Fanatics entering the game. How do the competitive dynamics shake out and just how much is this addressable market? Well, most of those competitors have been in for many years. Um, and, you know, what we've seen is that best product, best customer experience continues to win. So we feel like if we keep making investments there that we have upside to our share. Uh, we've been able to in the past, even with strong waves of competitive activity, gain share and increase our efficiency. Um, really, that's all what gave us the confidence to make a significant increase to our 2024 revenue guidance. And, you know, as I noted a moment ago, we increased our EBITDA, uh, adjusted EBITDA guidance by 15 percent. Um, you know, all of that is really pointing towards healthy underlying drivers. And competition brings out the best in everybody. I actually think it helps drive our company to work that much harder and produce a better customer experience. And uh, But ESPN is, is fairly new. And Fanatics, those are the two new ones, I guess, in the market. I wouldn't say Fanatics new. I mean, Fanatics has been in the market for a little bit. But ESPN is definitely a new one. Um, but listen... Uh, we think, like I said, competition is really great for the market. I think ESPN bet might actually be growing the market, which is great by bringing new people in. We've seen unbelievably strong customer acquisition over the past quarter. Um, so hopefully that just means that they're bringing new folks into the market. And, you know, listen, we're comfortable competing with anybody. We think that all of our competitors have a lot to offer, but we also feel like we can out-execute anybody. So, um, you know, we think that if we continue to deliver a great customer experience, even with competition coming and going, that customers will continue to choose DraftKings. Jason, you are at uh, about $116 uh, in average revenue per monthly user in the latest quarter. Is that where you would expect it to stay? In other words, are you in the mode now of where you can uh, actually get more revenue per user, or is it just about expanding the base? We were showing the map of, of states where it's still not legal to bet uh, on sports, and, and, and are you still banking on that as a total market grower? Oh, ab I mean, we think average revenue per user has a ton more upside. Uh, really, that's a, a core piece of what we think will drive future growth. But also, as you noted, the base is going to continue to grow, too, as more customers come into the market, more states launch. It's going to be both. Um, there's two things, really. One, within our OSB and iGaming products, we see customers increase their revenue. And part of that is more activity as we add more products. Part of that is our hold rate increasing. And then secondly, as we mix more into OSB and iGaming and out of DFS, that natural increase in average revenue per customer on those higher monetization products will just keep coming up as well. Um, so that combined with continued growth in the customer base, which, uh, you know, again, is on a rocket ship as well. We feel like we're still very much in the early innings and millions and millions of more betters will join the market over the coming years. But, uh, you know, so it's really both, I think. Let's talk about this deal, the cash and stock deal for the lottery business, Jason. Why should investors be excited about, it sounds like some of the analysts are excited about cross cross-selling opportunities here between the lottery and sports betting, monetization. Give us the strategy. Well, this is a really exciting deal for us. First, we got a great team. You know, Pete and his team are absolutely stellar, and we're excited to work with them. But this is a very unique asset. Um, it's in the lottery industry, which is one of the oldest, I think is the oldest form of gaming in the U.S., has a massive addressable audience with lots and lots of customers. And it's really just becoming digital. Uh, digital is such a small piece of it. So huge opportunity there. The digital customer is naturally a more tech-savvy, younger 
customers. So it's actually growing the market, which is great. That's why I think more and more states are going to want this. It grows the overall lottery market. And we know from overlap analysis that we did during the diligence process that there's a heavy overlap between the customers and that the customers that overlap actually spend more with DraftKings on our OSB and iGaming products than customers that don't use Jackpocket. So lots to like there, I think, and really excited about working with the team and driving value through these, this business. There's a ton of synergy potential with this business. Yeah, I'm presumably it's, you know, it operates on different dynamics in terms of where your exposures are and what people are actually playing. I just want to go back a little bit to the customer-friendly outcomes for a lot of these NFL games you mentioned. I mean, it, can we be confident that it's pure randomness, which always kind of comes and goes? Or is it something about the way that these bets are priced and, and, and the way that they were catering toward the popular public bets that somehow uh, left you more exposed? No, these were just random NFL weeks. And I mean, this is something well known in the industry. If you look at, uh, you know, others in the betting space, they, they've kind of had the same notes either on their earnings calls or otherwise. Uh, it You know, different sports are different, but with the NFL, we can absolutely tell when it's outcome based. I mean, it's the same thing every time. It's if a bunch of favorites win and a bunch yeah. of the star players score, right? Because um, people always bet, you always offer, is Kelsey going to score a touchdown or not? But guess what? Everybody always bets he's going to score a touchdown. So, um, you know, it just kind of when he doesn't, like in the Super Bowl, that's a good outcome for us. And when he does, like, you know, then it does, then it's not. And same thing on all the major stars, McCaffrey, everybody. They, that's just always the way it goes. And same thing on the favorites. People tend to bet the favorites. So it really is much more a fact of do the star players score and do the favorites win than it is anything to do with the pricing. How many more female bettors did you have on the game this year? Mm -hmm. Well, we've been seeing this increase for a few years now. We've made a big investment in pushing women's sports. We actually also benefited. Caitlin Clark was a huge boon. Uh, you know, we had about 9x year-over-year increase in women's college basketball handle, which obviously greatly outseeded. Uh, out, uh, outgrew uh, our average sport. Um, so this has been a trend we've been seeing for a while. I'm, I'm sure Taylor helped a little bit. We saw more female betters than ever on the Super Bowl this year. But, you know, hard to say how much of it is just a trend where more and more women are entering the market and we're making a push more mm -hmm. and more into women's sports, which, by the way, have lots of male betters, too. Lots of men bet on women's sports, too. So it's not just... Uh, you know, a matter of that. But I think it's just one of those things where it's a it's a demographic that hasn't been as marketed to. And, and now that we're starting to make inroads there, you're going to continue to see growth. And I'm sure the Taylor effect helped a little bit. Really quickly, Jason, since we haven't heard from you since the Barstool deal, tell us how that's going to grow the business. Obviously, it didn't work out for Penn Gaming. We're very excited about that one. We've worked with Barstool many, many times over the years. Uh, we have a great understanding of what they're able to deliver, so very comfortable underwriting the deal. This is one that I think we had enough data on to feel really precise in understanding the value, and I think it's going to be a great deal for both sides. So really excited to see what they can bring to the table. They have an engaged audience that fits well with who we, you know, who we get, and um, I think they're going to do a great job helping uh, bring that audience to DraftKings. All right, Jason, thank you for joining us. A lot, lot to get to there. Thanks for having we'll me. Appreciate it. From DraftKings. And the stock has turned around. It's higher now, almost yep. a percent. Started the day lower. All right. Uh, a lot more coming up on this morning's PPI print with Jeffrey's chief market strategist, David Zervos. The S&P coming off its 11th record close of the year. Right now, it's just about flat. Uh, and uh, kind of nip and tuck as to whether we get a five-week win streak extended today. Don't go away. Too smart for your trading app? Tired of brokers made for beginners? 
then it's time you get serious. It's time you join Tasty Trade, the tools and tech you need for a tough market, plus low and capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more, all in one place. If you trade anywhere else, you're missing out. Join the club, genius. Visit TastyTrade.com. Tasty Trade, Inc. is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA, NFA, and SIPC. Welcome back. I'm Pippa Stevens with your CNBC News Update. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin is expected to announce today he will not run for president. Two sources familiar with the decision tell NBC News he will break the news today after spending months considering a bid that would have shaken up the 2024 campaign. The West Virginia congressman previously said he would not seek re-election to his Senate seat this year, leading to speculation he would run for the White House as an independent or on the no-labels ticket. Egypt appears to be building a wall and is leveling land near its border with the Gaza Strip. The construction comes ahead of an anticipated Israeli offensive targeting Gaza's southernmost city of Rafah. Satellite images show work underway along with heavy machinery. Egypt has not publicly acknowledged the construction. And Greece became the first majority Orthodox Christian country to legalize same-sex marriage this week. Parliament approved the historic measure overnight. It will also allow same-sex couples to adopt children. The law, which is opposed by the Orthodox Church, will become official in a few days. Back to you. Pippa, thank you. We have some breaking news on Goldman Sachs. Leslie Picker has that for us. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Mike. Yeah, an AK filing crossing just moments ago from Goldman Sachs, detailing CEO David Solomon's total compensation for 2023. The board approved $31 million for Solomon. That's up 24% from last year, although it's below his comp from 2021. The package comprises $2 million in base salary and $29 million worth of discretionary bonus. That's 70% of that is performance-based stock units, and the rest is in cash. The 29% jump is the largest, or 24% jump, rather, is the largest change among the big bank CEOs whose 2023 compensation has been disclosed so far. But the total package amount is the second smallest. I'm told the comp decision came down to really two things, the execution on narrowing the consumer business and continued progress on other priorities, things like their bread and butter, global banking and markets, as well as hitting certain targets in asset and wealth management. Goldman shares gained 12% or so in 2023 as the company's net revenue declined 2% compared with the prior year. Return on tangible equity was 8.1% for 23 that was down from 11 percent in 2022. And the company recorded, if you recall, about $2.8 billion impact to earnings in the year from balance sheet exposure to things like commercial real estate, as well as the uh, putting a certain accounting uh, technique with its fintech lender, Green Sky, putting that in available for sale, as well as the FDIC special assessment fee, among other things, guys. All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker. Coming up, no quick fix for Nike. Job cuts and a downgrade catching the street's attention. That was the title of a new research report. We're going to dig into it after the break. Meanwhile, four price target hikes for NVIDIA this morning. In addition, Loop initiates the stock at a street high $1,200 a share. Stock up more than 230% in 12 months. It's also the biggest upside contributor today to the S&P 500. Money Movers returns in just a moment. A note from Oppenheimer's desk grabbing our attention this morning, downgrading Nike to perform, saying that they're concerned that top line numbers at the company are likely to remain sluggish over the next couple of quarters. 
analyst there led by Brian Nagel adding that the benefits from the company's $2 billion cost savings plan will take time to materialize. CEO John Donahoe did announce the layoffs in a memo to staff last night, which we were able to obtain here at CNBC. So he notes that there's going to be a 2% overall reduction to the workforce. So that's of 80,000 people, about 1,600 employees. Donahoe saying the company is, quote, not currently performing at our best and holds himself and leadership responsible. I think the story here, Mike, though, as I mentioned earlier, it's not just about cost cuts for Nike. It's taking a step back, looking at the business. And here's a direct quote from the internal memo, redeploying our resources to increase investment in our most significant fields of play and growth opportunities. And he lists them, running, women's, and the Jordan brand. This is how we will reignite our growth. So lays out very clearly yeah. the strategy here in terms of taking those savings to reinvest in those three strategic areas where you could argue Nike hasn't been growing as fast as, as it would like to. Yeah, tightening up the focus share. on play areas where you have an advantage. I mean, there's, you're sitting in a situation where it's basically flat revenue this fiscal year versus last year. That's the projection. Maybe return to mid-single digit next year. So you have to kind of convey that there's something going on below the surface market share-wise. You're making an effort where you can. Um, you know, stock is not as expensive as it was a while ago, but it definitely has stagnated for a while. You know, Lululemon, I was looking, is about one-fifth the sales total and one-third the market value. So, I mean, obviously, it's not one for one. They're not really a footwear player. It's, but it's much more about But isn't that where, about the growth trajectory, where the exactly. market sees it's, it's where going? the market yeah. would prefer to bet on the athletic space. Yeah, but so much smaller. It is, yes. it is true. You know, it, it also strikes me that it's a tough environment overall. I know Lulu's had a good run of sure. it lately, but for Under Armour, Definitely. for Adidas... For Puma, they've all mentioned weakness lately in the top line, yeah. even though, as Donahoe says, interest in sport and wellness has never Yeah, in general, higher. it's still there. But, of course, in my world, um, the Nike-made Major League Baseball uniforms are getting bad reviews by the players this year. It's Nike and oh, Fanatics really? have teamed up. Um, but this is just, the I this is the story for, for I'd rather hear anecdotes about your teenage daughters. On oh, yeah, I, they I need better, to catch up with them. They have a better I, feel. I have to schedule some time with them to figure out <laughs> what they're up to. So, yeah. Good. Next week when we're all off, you can, <laughs> right. when we're both off. Uh, Mike, thank you. A wider than expected loss and downgrade have Roku shares plummeting this morning. Competition from Walmart is one of the concerns there. TechCheck's going to look into the Roku story right on the other side of this break. Roku shares down big this morning after a wider-than-expected loss and a downgrade. That is the focus of today's Tech Check with Julia Borston. Good morning, Julia. Good morning to you. Well, Roku may have beat expectations when it came to revenue and active accounts, but a bigger loss than expected and a warning about the year ahead sending the stock plummeting. CEO Anthony Wood telling me in an exclusive interview that the video advertising business is rebounding and growth is starting to accelerate there. But he also said that the pullback on spending on streaming apps promotion will continue. And then there's a part of our business called media and entertainment, which is where we focus on, you know, uh, helping helping media companies promote their services on our platform. And it's something that we're really good at. It's, we're, it's, we're probably the industry leader that is a strong business for us. But it's been challenged and pressured for the last four quarters, and it's probably going to continue to be pressured uh, for the rest of this year. Roku, uh, Roku's Wood did tell me that the launch of a new so sports streaming joint venture that's in the works from Disney, Warner, Discovery and Fox would benefit their business by driving more users to streaming, maybe away from linear TV and also drawing ad revenue from new entrants that are promoting their apps. But shares of Roku are now down about 23 percent, Mike. 
Yes, uh, rough and things move fast in general in, uh, in the world of video. Julia, lots of buzz today around OpenAI's new text-to-video tool. So how does it work? What could be the impact on Hollywood? Well, it's, it's pretty impressive, Mike, if you've seen these demos. It's from OpenAI, and it's called Sora. This is a new text-to-video AI tool that can turn a descriptive sentence or two into a clip of video that's as long as a minute long. Now, Sora can also generate video clips based on still images or extend videos or fill in missing frames. Take a look. Here's the text prop, a litter of golden retriever puppies playing in the snow. It looks like real go, uh, golden retrievers. The prompt says their heads pop out of the snow and are covered in it. Looks like a real uh, video to me, but that is generated by AI. Now, OpenAI's expansion beyond text and images raises some concerns about the potential for deepfake videos to manipulate people, especially ahead of the election. OpenAI saying we'll be engaging policymakers, educators, and artists around the world to understand their concerns and to identify positive use cases for this new technology. OpenAI is also saying it's building a detection classifier to help identify SOAR-generated clips, and they also plan to include metadata to help identify AI-generated content. Now, this new technology may not be threatening the livelihood of filmmakers just yet. It's impossible to stitch together these videos to make a whole movie, but graphic designers and animators, that's who may be concerned. Mike? For sure. And it occurs to me, too, people always wonder why animated films cost so much. I don't know if eventually this can create some efficiencies there, too. We'll have to uh, have to see. Julia, thank you. Was that a real golden retriever? Because you didn't buy that, that was, was a real That donation. was much better, I thought. <laughs> I mean, I was pretty impressed by it. I think there's a lot that of That was not golden... a real golden retriever. No, 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 I, I don't agree I with. do notice that we see These guys look pretty real to me. They yeah. do. I think they all I do. I think there's a lot of golden retriever puppy videos that they can train on because everyone <laughs> who has one. More exactly. sample. Yeah. Yes. All right. Julie, thanks. All right. Jeffrey's chief market strategist, David Zervos, is with us next. His reaction to this morning's PPI print and the comments we heard from Fed President Bostic. And taking a look at the markets, Dow, flirting with positive territory here, almost exactly flat. The S&P 500 has gone positive. Uh, NASDAQ also up off its lows. S&P just barely in record territory. Money Movers back after this. My outlook is to start the normalization, start returning our, our product policy stance to a more neutral stance in the summertime. Right? And I'll have to say, a, a year ago, six months ago, I was in the fourth quarter. So we've seen tremendous progress, and I'm hopeful that that continues. If that continues, I'll be willing to pull it forward even further, but I want to see it continue before making that judgment. You still think three rate cuts this year? Well, that, that's what was in the dot plot. I was one of the two rate cut increases. Okay. Uh, so I'm still at two, uh, but if I pull it forward, if the, if the data comes in more positively, I could move to three for sure. Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic just this hour making the case to hold off on interest rate cuts, but did say he was open to the summer and open to revising to three cuts, even though we got that hotter than expected inflation print today and earlier this week. Let's bring in Jeffrey's chief market strategist, David Zervos, for his reaction. David, Mike and I were talking about his stance there, President Bostic. He was much more on the side of, hey, I could revise toward more cuts and earlier cuts than the opposite which is notable given the two hotter than expected inflation prints. Do you think that's the right 
the right attitude? I think it's the right read on the Fed this year, Sarah. I think the Fed is very open to uh, reducing rates and <clears throat> taking their foot off the brake if conditions warrant it, either on the growth side or on the inflation side. And for lack of a better word, uh, the way we've pushed it forward with Jeffrey's clients is to talk about how the Fed put structure is back in place. You know, for a couple years, 2022 mm -hmm. and 2023, the Fed really hasn't been able to help us. Remember when markets crashed in 2022 and we went from 4,800 down to 3,600 in the S&P, all we heard from Jay was pain, 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 and you got to take it. So I think we've come a long way in two years. I'm pretty happy about where we are. I really like the way Raphael uh, approached it, and I think it sounds uh, very consistent with the way we've been um, describing the Federal Reserve's reaction function to our clients. Well, I guess I'm wondering when I ask, is it the right attitude, is when you get too hotter than expected inflation readings, David, does it make you worry that there's going to be stickier inflation and it's going to be harder for them to have to do that, even though they have this view that they're that they're moving toward cuts? I think it's really hard to look at one piece of data. I wouldn't get too bogged down with it or even two or three, to be honest with you. I think you got to keep the long-term vision here. And the long-term vision here is that over the last 18 months, Inflation has basically fallen back 600 basis points from the highs, from nine down to three, all while growth has continued to surprise and accelerate to the upside. So this is really a supply story. It's always been a supply story. The demand side has just got it wrong. And I think we're going to have some ups and downs. Maybe demand's a little bit stronger than we might have thought at this stage of the cycle. And given how policy may not be as restrictive as people think if they look at the combination of the balance sheet and rates. But I'm not really worried about it, Sarah. And I, I, I think... Uh, we're okay. really heading to a trajectory where I, I think the Fed can be reactive, and that's the support for risk assets. Yeah. We don't need rate cuts to get risk assets to go higher. Remember, last year, the Fed hiked rates 100 basis points. Market was expecting 50 bips of cuts at the beginning of the year, and the S&P had a fantastic year. So we don't need it. We just need them to be there if things get messed. Yeah. And okay. they are. Thank you, David. I, I like to hear uh, hear that echo of what I've been trying to say for a while. <laughs> Although uh, you mentioned, that, you know, we're cushioned based on what the Fed could do if something goes wrong. But at this point, are equity and credit markets not already sort of positioned for some pretty good outcomes? You know, Mike, I, I don't know that I would go there. I think, look, take the big picture view. Really, if you look at equities over the last two years, the S&P 500, two years ago before the Fed started all this and we kind of got bogged down in the, the March liftoff. If you go back to January, we were pushing new highs in January of 22. We were at 4,800. We're not that far away from where that from that number now, 4,900, 5,000. We really haven't gone anywhere in two years. So mm -hmm. I kind of look at the equity market and go, wow, nominal GDP growth has been you know exceptionally high. We've got a lot more income, uh, a lot more expenditure, a lot more production in the economy in dollar terms and actually in real terms, but really more importantly in dollar terms. And the equity markets haven't really budged. So I, I'm, I'm not going to get too bogged down with the mm -hmm. idea that too much is pricing. Maybe you could argue the credit markets have a little more, yeah. uh, a little more excess in them. Mm -hmm. but, but I'm moving more to yeah. equities these days. All right. David Zervos, thank you. Got to we got to have you back on. Talk about your new note on, on deficits coming to us from what looks like a sauna. Look, I feel better <laughs> hearing from David Zervos and from Atlanta Fed yes, President Boston on inflation on the markets, and maybe the market does too, because we just went it, positive. It helps explain why we're here, yeah. S&P just barely on track for a new record, we'll see. Too smart for your trading app? Tired of brokers made for beginners? Then it's time you get serious. It's time you join Tasty Trade. 
the tools and tech you need for a tough market, plus low and capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more, all in one place. If you trade anywhere else, you're missing out. Join the club, genius. Visit TastyTrade.com. Tasty Trade Inc. is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA, NFA, and SIPC.